Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 96th episode of MGG Fast Finance, the podcast that knows the only thing better than the Power Nine is a crypto mine. MGG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face to Face Games. FaceToFaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on Magic singles and sealed product, with shipping them both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face to Face card pricing via MTGPrice.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host tonight is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good afternoon, everyone. Glad to be here for episode 96. Uh, all sorts of interesting stuff to talk about this week. Um, our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. All right, Travis, what's going on today? What are we, what are we talking about? Well, what's shaking? James, this week we have my printer running. That's segment zero. <laughs> segment one is our top professionals. Movers. Yep. <laughs> segment one is our top movers where we're going to talk about the cards that have uh, risen the most in price over the last week. Segment two, our cards to watch, our cards that James and I have our eyes on because we think they may rise in price. And segment three is our topic of the week. We'll touch on the silver border cards being legal in EDH for uh, six weeks, a month and a half, two months. And uh, we might also jump into some Masters 25 speculation, maybe some other topics. We'll see what takes our fancy when we get there. So let's start out the week. Uh, segment one, top movers, blind, obedi- blind obedience out of gate crash. Um, we're looking at the foil copies started the week at around seven up towards around 12 blind obedience is a card we've talked about uh, about five or six weeks ago, right before October, I called it as a pick at like three or $4. And then the week later it had jumped up to around the 10 or $12 range. It has settled a little bit since then, but people, I guess, mopped up some cheaper copies. Uh, lowest you're paying right now is about $10. Uh, so still uh, still not a lot of supply out there on this. We'll probably talk about it a little bit more in segment two. Yeah, I mean, I liked your pick at $4. Um, given how low supply is, I'm still I'm not scared to get in at this significantly higher, higher price point. Anybody that listened to you the first time is going to do well. I think they're going to get a chance to exit higher. And I, I know you have some thoughts on that in, in the next segment. Yeah. Uh, okay, what do you got next for us? So Pongify is another EDH card that uh, people probably forget is is widely played, almost 8,000 decks running the, the card, and it's only ever seen uh, the one foil printing, if I'm correct. Uh, originals from Planar Chaos go from, uh, have gone from $9 to 15 for about a 67% gain. Um, just not that many of that foil lying around. Um, I think it's been reprinted, if I'm not mistaken, in some EDH sets. Um, but that situation where you only have the original foil printing is a, is usually a good place to start hunting for specs. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, and it Pongify. Oh, that uh, that's not the old border or not the color shifted border though, unfortunately, which would have made it even cooler. No, it's the normal border. Even still, the and you won't get that art again. I would imagine because um, that art is is fine but it's a little more mm, a little flat i don't want to say flatter but less cartoony less less comic book art 
than they've been trending towards with recent sets. So they'll probably get a different art too, instead of that very angry, probably rabies infested monkey that we've got right now. <clears throat> the only other printing was in Commander 2014 as a non-foil. And yeah. So that explains a lot. Uh, okay, next up on our list is Condemn. We're looking at the Dissension Foils. Uh, started the week at around 7, up towards around 12. Condemn is a, a permanent sideline card in Modern. We see it all the, you know, every now and then you'll see a couple of them floating around um, in various sideboards and occasionally a main deck type of thing. Uh, the Dissension Foils are the original, and I'm trying to find... Uh, here we go. Okay, so the original Condemned Foils, market price is at five and change, but there's only one copy, one near mint foil copy left right now at seven dollars. Uh, so if you I mean if you can find them for seven ish dollars, five or six dollars, they're probably a pretty solid pickup because it's the original foil printing. But there are a lot of versions of this, several other foils as well. Um, there's also a player rewards for this, a full art textless one. So I, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe at $5, I like them just because you know you're kind of under market, but I'm not like completely in love with this. I got a bunch of these at 2 or $3 uh, in early summer, I believe, and it's from 10th edition Magic 2011 and Dissension. All the other printings have been in Commander, Commander 2014 and 2017, so no foils for quite some time. And it's usually, you know, the, the use case is pretty mild, as you said. Um, Blue-white control usually runs one or two copies in the sideboard because... Uh, and usually in proportion to how well Death Shadow is doing uh, in the meta, because this uh, puts the Death Shadow on the bottom of its owner's library, and then its owner gains life equal to the Death Shadow's toughness, which can potentially um, kill the other Death, Death Shadow that might be on the board. Um, so it's a tricky little sideboard card that is sometimes useful, but hasn't seen a foil printing in a long time. If you see it get reprinted in foil in something like M25, then these foils are going to be in jeopardy. Yeah, for sure. What's next, James? So Tinker Foils from Urza's Legacy, uh, moving from 18 to 35. This is uh, a card that is banned pretty much everywhere you'd ever want to play it. Banned in EDH, banned in Legacy, I'm assuming. Um, and uh, as a result, it's more of a collector foil. Um, the original foil printing from the first year of, ever of foils printed in Magic. Um, super low supply. Not the kind of thing you're likely to have a lot of hanging around, and the use case is is primarily collector, so not a card you're going to be want to want to be super deep on, but it will probably appreciate reasonably over time. Okay, uh, yeah, I agree. It's kind of part of Magic's history. Next on our list is Rakdos Charm from Return to Ravnica. Again, foils. Very shiny week this week. Uh, started the week at around five ish dollars, maybe four fifty, up towards ten dollars right now. The uh, I see one. English foil copy at 10. There's a Chinese foil at $8. Um, so uh, about a double up there. Three printings so far on Rakdos Charm, but the other two are uh, commander sets, Commander 2016 and 17. A very useful card. Uh, Exiles an entire graveyard. So you can see the utility in that in both modern and EDH. Destroys an artifact. Again, same goes. And each creature deals one damage to its controller. This was a spicy little sideboard card back when Twin was popular because you'd let them make all of their Twin copies and then you would Rakdos Charm and their million Twins would, million Pestermites would do a million damage to them. Uh, also, not probably not quite as brutal in EDH, but I mean, people will put 20 or 30 creatures into play and you can one-shot them with this. So a lot of utility for a two-mana card. Uh, and there's basically no foils left. Um, so, well, it's never going to be like a main deck four of staple in 
uh, in modern, it certainly sees enough play in sideboards and various EDH decks to warrant a price tag probably a little greater than $10. If we go another year without a foil, I could see it getting getting an actual $20 for these. Yeah, I agree. What's next? So moving right along, we've got Pattern of Rebirth foils, also from that first year of foil magic uh, versus Destiny foil and going from 28 to 64. This card's only in 2200 EDH decks, which seems like a mistake to me. Um, you basically, it's an enchantment for four mana. You put it on a creature, and if that creature dies, you get to pull any other creature you want out of your de- out of your library and put it into play. Um, that's a very powerful effect, and this card is unlikely to see a reprint anytime soon. Um, I'm not. Is is that a reserve list card? I'd have to double check. Pattern of Rebirth is. Oh, I spelled it wrong. Pattern of Rebirth is not a reserve list card. It just still only has one printing from Urza's Destiny, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. So it could show up in a commander set at some point, but the the you know short of that, it's not going to come back in standard. Like the this this effect is a warping influence on on a format with lesser sets because whatever the best uh, creature is in that format, assuming that format has an accelerator, you're going to see all these turn three Ember Cools and shit that nobody wants to deal with. Um, so uh, you're really just hoping that they don't reprint it in, in EDH, but even if that happens, it's not going to impact the foils. So unless they start printing a Commander's Arsenal-style product, which I predict they actually will at some point in the next couple of years, but until we see hints of that, cards like this are, are pretty safe bets to keep appreciating. You know, do I like it at 60+, plus? no, not so much. I liked it pretty good at 20 to 30. I think I already flipped a couple from Europe this year um, that were acquired closer to the 20 mark. And um, it could this thing could hit 80 or 100 over time, but uh, you, you need to see the EDH community to catch on to how useful this card is. Yes. Yeah, it does seem like it could definitely, it could certainly see more play there. Kind of curious that it doesn't. Um, a really powerful card. I would be concerned about, I mean, non-foils, it seems shocking that we haven't seen this show up in a commander set yet. So uh, I would not not think that we won't forever, if that sentence makes sense. Mm-hmm. So final card on the list this week, we've got Ash and Skin Zubera foils in theory moving from 50 cents to 350. That's exactly, that's supposedly a 700% plus gain, but blah, 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 blah. This is just flavor of the week stuff from Saffron Olive running five color Zubera Rally in Modern, um, which was a kind of silly, occasionally busted looking deck. Um, He was running basically all the Zuberas that um, compile basically compound effects as they come into play. And then running Grizzly Salvage, gathered the pack, rallied the ancestors, and returned to the ranks um, so that he could have piles of them coming into play at the same time. This is exactly the kind of thing that you would expect to move a card in the short term and not have any lasting impact um, unless somebody figures out how to uh, drive it into at least tier two in modern at some point, which I think is unlikely. Yeah, this is not real, and you shouldn't think that it's real. Uh, But it is... it, it, there, we'll, we'll talk about this more in segment two. Um, speaking of which, let's hop over there to cards to watch. Uh, James, what is your first choice for us this week? 
May as well dig in on a pretty obvious EDH pick I've talked about multiple times in the past. Uh, when Modern Masters 2017 came out, one of my first picks was uh, Foil Cyclonic Rifts, which had dropped through the floor, and it just seemed like a no-brainer that they were going to be one of these cards that gains ground um, within the year of its uh, re-release. Uh, sure enough, we've seen them accelerate from the 8 to $10 range that I was buying them at in the spring up into about $15 uh, for Foils. Um, I think these are going to hit 30. The the supply is extremely low already. This is the number one blue card in EDH. Uh, it still doesn't seem to be showing any signs of getting banned anytime soon. People have just accepted that it's going to be one of the better cards in the format. And as such, you'll expect foils to see a reprint again in, say, two to three years. But in that interim, I expect that these foils are going to get 25, 30, 35, 40. Um, and you may as well mop up what's remaining and uh, get slightly less profit than you would have got six months ago, but still very reasonable returns, I think. Sure. Uh, I mean, this is one of those cards that you can probably just come back to every time it gets reprinted, the price drops, you scoop up some more copies and then uh, sell them again after it climbs in between, you know, the year or two in between the next reprinting. So basically never going to not be one of the most played blue cards in EDH uh, until it's banned, if it ever happens. Um, let's see. My first card this week is uh, Cheaty Face. Um, not something I would have thought myself, I would have found myself saying, but here we are. Cheaty Face is the unhinged uncommon. He's a three mana two, two flyer. And you may sneak him into play without paying for him. But if an opponent catches you right away, you have to exile him from the game. Uh, this is part of the EDH rules committee's decision to allow silver border cards in EDH through the release of uh, what, whatever it is in January. Is it the new set? Isn't something that's coming out in January that they're holding off that this is legal until. Um, so if you can score copies of this at around $3, they'll probably jump to about six-ish, six or seven dollars over the next couple of weeks as people look to score some to put in their EDH decks because it's a funny, amusing card. Um, I mean, they were already like two, two fifty, I think, prior to this announcement. So um there was some demand. I mean, I would talk about foils, but you haven't foils have been rare and hard to come by anyways. Uh so just as uh, I, I see this as a, a pretty easy double up. Um, as a result of the rules announcement. So it's till January 15th that silver border cards are legal. <clears throat> and a lot of EDH players seem to be a little upset about this. Um, we can talk about that in the fourth segment. But uh, the foils for this card, um, given how old they are, very few of them lying around. Um, you can get some in the 11 to $12 range, and then they are just going to be gone. And that's the lightly played foils. The near mints have already been cleared out. So... If you're interested in the card, you might want to pop into your local shop and see if they ha have yet to reprice this stuff. Um, a lot of stores, this stuff's going to be ha has been languishing in a border for, in a in a binder for some time without any attention on it. Uh, so worth poking around in your own collection and and locally and see what you can dig up. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, what have you got next for us? Liliana of the Veil Foils from MM17 is the other thing I've got my eye on. They are in relatively low supply. And they're already 140 bucks, so it's not a cheap buy-in. But I think there's every reason to believe that before we see another printing of Liliana of the Veil, which I think will be at least two years, um, maybe in something like Modern Masters 2019, um, you know, these are probably going to have a chance to get up to 200 again. Um, Liliana of the Veil Foils were up, I think, 300 plus at one point. Um, 
she saw a reprint, her foils dropped. Those foils are getting gobbled up. It's a card that is uh, uh, perennially useful in modern and legacy um, to important formats uh, where people are willing to buy pricey cards. Um, also good, obviously, in uh, certain EDH decks in certain circumstances. So, yeah, I mean, this is uh, a nice way. If you're the kind of speculator that's got more money than time, then these kind of speculations where instead of buying 100 copies of something, you're just buying a single copy and holding for a bit, and you can play with it in the interim if you protect it properly. Um, you know, this is the kind of thing you might want to be looking at. Yeah, I, it is. There's certainly the room there. And I mean, the Innistrad foils were at one point like 250 pushing 300. We know that there's certainly a high end on these. So if they don't pump out any more copies, uh, I could definitely see these ticking up over time into the 200 or possibly even greater region um, if we're kind of starved for for reprints in a year and a half or so. Yeah, exactly. So your next pick? Uh, my next pick is Return to the Ranks. Uh, looking at the M15 copies, there's only... Where'd my mouse go? There are... There's only one printing of Return to the Ranks from M15. Uh, right now, the foils are available in and around the 2 to 250 range. Uh, I like these up to probably about $10. So these were like a key piece of that Zubera deck that Saffron put together. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think that Zubera deck is any good at all. It doesn't matter. Um, but what it does kind of point out is that there's we see a lot of collected company court of calling decks, and but we haven't seen too much of the Return of the Ranks and uh, what is that other one? Return of the Ranks and wait, wait, Rally the Ancestors. That combination of spells that reanimates a lot of small creatures. So you know. Every time we get a new set, there's a couple more printed, and eventually we may hit some other form of critical mass that kind of sets up a Return of the Ranks combo deck in Modern. Um, it will probably involve a lot of very small, crummy creatures that just kind of interact well. But I mean that in the sense that, like, they're probably not going to be worth a lot of money. Like, we're looking at, like, com you know, there aren't a lot of, like, really synergistic, like, combo-esque um, rare and mythic one and two drop creatures. Those types of creatures are going to be things like Viserysir, uh, which are going to be kind of cheaper um, and less likely to have a lot of value funneled into them. So if we see a, a modern combo deck that uses Rally in return uh, grow, that money will probably get pushed into those two cards, Rally and the Return of the Ranks. Uh, and the Return of the Ranks foils at this point are old from M15. So we're talking about like three years. Uh, there's not a lot of supply. I'm seeing 24 sellers on TCG and only a handful of them have more than one copy and nobody has more than four. Uh, so, you know, 250 ish dollar, you know, 250 or so, uh, if this ever catches on in any other deck, it will be a quick rise to $10. Yeah. I mean, it's a very a kind of a classic speculatory pick. Here's a card with a potentially high power level that is basically not played in a format. Someday they'll print some stuff and, you know, is it going to be an outlier deck or, or something that commands immediate attention? Um, I like the fact that there aren't very many foils left lying around. Um, I feel like we've got better, like higher priorities in terms of where we can stash our money, but it's certainly a card I think is worth keeping our eye on. Yes. Yep. Uh, what's your last pick of the week, James? So one of our listeners pointed out, uh, when we asked what they wanted us to talk about this week, that they were surprised that Garrick Apex Predator wasn't more expensive. Um, I don't necessarily agree with it in the non-foil ver version, but there aren't very many foils around 
left lying around. This is a foil mythic that is a few years old now that could see a reprint in something like M25 um, or a future master set as, you know, a powerful planeswalker that's easy to throw in there as a mythic that will, you know, have in value overnight once it's announced. But in the meantime, the foils could easily appreciate from 20 to 35 or $40. It only shows up in 4,000 decks on EDH direct, but um, it's a it's a very useful card um, in casual and and planeswalker focused uh, EDH decks if you can protect it. And there just aren't that many foils lying around, so I, I think you know if you want one for your collection or to play in a specific decks, go ahead and grab one at twenty, and you're probably not going to be disappointed when you get to unload it down the road for maybe double that or it ever sees a reprint. Sure, it is a, a really powerful card that has a huge impact on the board as soon as it comes down. And he's able to, I mean, I was going to say, he's able to protect himself, which I guess is sort of irrelevant, but kind of matters a little bit. But he's a, he's a cool card. Um, yeah, sure, I'm in. You know, without a reprint, there's no way he's going to stay. A $20 foil for a humongous, awesome Planeswalker is pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty, pretty good. Um, <laughs> I will wrap up the week with... Uh, we're just going to revisit blind obedience. Like I'm not, I'm not like gung ho about this, but it is worth keeping an eye on. You can still pick up foils around the $10 range. It's still extremely popular in EDH. We saw the price jump up again a little bit uh, recently, or I should say the price had settled, but then people scooped up a couple more cheap copies to pull it back up. I do think this is likely to keep raising in price um, towards that $20 marker or so is probably about where you could land with this and keep and, and actually sell copies. So, uh, you know, if you can score these around $10, I think that's a good pickup um, and plan to out them around 18 to 20. Yeah, I mean, Blind Obedience has, has, is a quietly, quietly excellent card in EDH. Um, and there just aren't that many foils lying around. There's no real reason for them to reprint it given they, they have just reprinted a non-foil copy not too long ago and those foils are just going to keep climbing so mopping up the remainder seems like a pretty solid play i'm a big fan of pairing blind obedience with meek stone uh so everyone's creatures come in the play tapped and none of them untap and it will drive your opponents absolutely bonkers (laughs) fair enough all right so Yep, let's do segment four, our topic of the week. Uh, let's start out with uh, the silver border because because mm-hmm. we're skipping we're skipping segment three where we usually talk about the meta game week in review because there's not really anything to go over there. <laughs> um, though there will be tons of stuff next week. Right. Sorry, uh, just reading the headers here. Segment three, segment three point four, topic of the week. The the silver border cards being legal in EDH. A very curious decision. Uh, you you had mentioned earlier, Sheldon and Henry in the in the EDH rules crowd got a lot of flack for this um a lot less put a lot more pushback than i guess i would have anticipated initially uh because now it means if you show up to for say a sanctioned side event at a grand prix people are going to be playing silver cards in their decks uh and if you were planning on going to a gp just to play edh side events now you have to contend with that so uh, my heart goes out to the guys who had like already booked trips to gps and now are stuck dealing with this change that seems like it would be rather irritating um but I saw this announcement and I'm not quite sure what to make of this. So, I, I mean, I picked Cheaty Face as a, as a card that will probably bump up in price. But I don't know. Like, it's such a short period of time. Do you think that there's going to be a major change in prices on this? I mean, you know, if you didn't buy the card instantly, like if you didn't see this announcement and go out and, and suddenly buy the card that you wanted. At this point, by the time you 
decide what you want, buy it, it gets shipped to you, you get it into your deck, and then you schedule a game. How many times are you really going to be able to use it? And like, are people going to want to put that money into it? Okay, so the pur- the purpose here, as with much of what they're doing um, with Iconic Masters and Unstable, is to try, is to thrust in a bunch of different directions kind of blindly, like a dude with his dick out and a blindfold on, trying to see what stuff is going to work to get what they want, which is to sell more product and get people excited and allow them to tweak uh, magic product lines to, you know, boost sales. This I, I think it's a great idea um, vis-a-vis Unstable, though I'm not particularly the market for it, to explore the wacky fun side of EDH and see if that whole domain of cards, the fun side of magic that borders on the wacky and includes the physical, should be um, grandfathered into EDH with a ban list. I suspect the answer is yes. I, I suspect that there are plenty of play groups to get together to have beers on a Friday night that are like in their late 20s, 30s, 40s that have families that aren't particularly competitive EDH groups. They just like to have fun that are not playing cutthroat. Uh, just those are the sounds of me selling stuff on eBay as we record. <laughs> That's the sound of money being made, folks. Uh so yeah, I suspect there's lots of play groups that'll be totally into this and that will be ca- perfectly capable of negotiating locally what cards might be problematic. Like I can totally get as a guy who has like a multi-thousand dollar Atraxa deck, I don't really want those cards being knocked off uh, the table with a nerf gun. But I, I also don't think that's going to end up being a big problem during this like period up till January 15th when, when during which this is going on, I suspect you just, even if you're just showing up blindly to play in a side tournament at a GP or something, you're going to negotiate at the table. Like you're going to show up and say, Hey, I'm running some silver cards. Does anybody have a problem with that? And if you're the kind of dick that doesn't do that, when you whip out the card and you didn't warn people, you can always just call a judge and work it out. Right? Like you can, you can just say, Hey, I'm not super comfortable. Can we negotiate a way for this to take place? And it could be mildly annoying, but I don't think there's going to be like fist fights over this shit. Um, I, I think it's fine. I would have done this differently <laughs> and I'm surprised they didn't. Instead of making it a whole official changes to the rules thing, I would have run a program through the LGSs where for six weeks you encourage them to run silver bordered uh, legal EDH on Friday nights or whatever, wacky Fridays, and you send them some sweet promos for prizes or something or partici- random participation prizes and you have them fill out a survey as part of that process and give feedback about what they liked and didn't like. Because the problem here is that even if they try to run a, sur- a market research survey towards the end of this, um, they may or may not achieve their goal because some people are just going to be, whether or not they ever even ended up playing a game where there were silver bordered cards, there's people like DJ who seemed offended and annoyed by the entire premise. And, you know, he's not the only one. Lots of people seem to have that reaction. Um, And so I think they have stumbled, as they do so often, in the way that they presented this possibility to people. Yeah, it does seem odd that this is the way they chose to do it, just because of how it affects people. Like, oh, so now I have to show up 
now, now I can't be angry at the guy who is like trying to pull this stuff at my local store at the Grand Prix because technically it's legal. Like it's just, it's just so annoying. I think uh, to have to put up with it. And you're absolutely right. Like they could have said, okay, well, coinciding with the release of Unstable for these number of weeks. Uh, you know, we're running an in-store program where every week that you show up and play Silver Border EDH at your card store, you can get a promo Silver Border card and kind of let people play in that sense and and run side events at the GP like EDH and Silver Border EDH, like maybe split them at the Grand Prix for a couple of weeks type of thing so that you don't force it upon everyone. And then it's a much more like opt-in scenario and you're you're getting the people who want it uh, but not forcing it on people who don't want to. It, it is curious. The, and there's so much you could be doing with this. This all ties back to the weakness of the uh, Wizards Play Network and DCI um, program that I've alluded to in the past and that I I plan to do a full fourth segment on sometime in the near future, um, where in brief, you need a piece of software that is tied into the LGS systems that tracks everybody's purchases um, and and aggregates that data for wizards so they know exactly what people are buying at the LGS. Now, there's privacy issues there, but they're easily handled by just an, a non, uh, making sure that their name is not stored with their DCI in, in this particular database. Um, and that's not even really that big of a deal because do you really care that wizards knows what you bought? They're going to use it to fine tune the product. They're also going to use it to fine tune the price and dip into your pocket. But <clears throat> if they do that, if they when they're doing that correctly, um, by mining data effectively, you're not going to complain because they're going to optimize the product to price ratio to match your needs specifically, which is the whole big data game that they should be playing, where they know that that Bobby uh, tends to get excited about like silver bordered cards and he bought four boxes of Unstable to play with his friends and this other guy didn't even touch it with a 10-foot pole. You should invite those two people to different programs. You should incentivize them to participate and then you should um, mine them for data through market research and tracking of their purchases like there's there's so much you could be doing here that embraces the modern world and and enhances your brand marketing strategy that is just i'm just stunned that in a in a game where everybody already has a, a number they don't leverage that number for anything do you ever hear some of the things that we say out loud and kind of wonder if maybe we're not the good guys sometimes <laughs> I, I don't think that see i used to be like let, let, let me tell you a story there, there's a there's a drugstore chain that essentially has a monopoly in canada called shoppers drug mart and they've had a thing called optimum points since geez the late 90s where they track what you buy and they give you points and the whole the whole concept like as with air miles as with a million loyalty programs that we're all participating in is that they're giving you these discounts in the form of points over time in in exchange for mining your data so that they can market to you better. And for years, I, I spent thousands of dollars at this store across from my house going on 20 years now and have, ne- have always refused to get the optimum points card on general principle that I didn't want my data tracked. But and then I sat down and did the math one day and realized that that had cost me something like six or seven thousand dollars. And that and that the worst that would have happened is is that they would have sent me some coupons in the mail or that I would have totally ignored and thrown in the trash. Um, or, 
And they never had my email address. I mean, the bottom line is this. We, we live in a full surveillance state, whether we realize that or not. The kinds of things the government, the personal data the government has access to has now has to be assumed to be essentially everything you do. Google knows everything. The government knows everything. Facebook knows everything. That's Those engines are, are not back asswords like wizards. They are fully functional modern systems that already have all the data. So if you're concerned about that, you may as well just unplug from society and go live in the woods. Otherwise, you can hide in the anonymity of that of the infinite data and, no, and rest assured that unless you lead a revolution and get branded a terrorist, your data is essentially as safe as it is to as your neighbor's data, as you know the person next door to them, and so forth. My point being that data collection is omnipresent. Wizards knowing a little bit more about what we buy. <laughs> is highly unlikely to change our overall privacy po- profile in the big in the overall scheme of things. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's true. Like, it's a drop in a bucket compared to everything else. Uh, my thought was just yep. like, for the, all, we should all be aghast at all of this all the time, and we've gotten so numb and comfortable with it. We're like, yeah, wizards should definitely be incentivizing and manipulating all of us to make more money off of us. They should do that. Why don't they do that? It's like, why am I asking them to pick money out of my pocket? That's an odd thing to be saying. Well, well, here's the thing. We, we, my partner and a business partner and I um, started Avic together back in the mid 2000s. We were um, banding around a startup that we didn't end up launching that was going to be called uh, AdSense. This is before Google was using the term um, that was basically going to do exactly this kind of stuff. So it was, it was going to replace all the ads in your browser with ones that were specific to what you needed, which is essentially what ended up happening anyway. Um, and the the theory behind that was very simple. Advertising is such useless, annoying content when it markets to you something that you don't want or need at, at present. But when you're looking to buy a snowboard or a car or a new phone, that information can be exactly what you need to set you up to complete the task you're looking to complete, right? And so how personalized marketing data is, is generally how you measure how effective it's going to be, but also how useful it is to the end user. So in theory, when you mine people's purchasing habits for information, you end up giving them more of what they want and they give you more of their money because you gave them what they want. In a scenario like Magic, where you're already buying in on, if you're playing Magic, you're already buying in on the concept that this is a game that you don't just get to spend $50 on for a boxed set and never give them any more money. You're already embracing the collectability of the game and the fact that you're going to be giving them $100, $500, $1,000, $2,000 worth of your money every year until you stop playing. <laughs> the quite, only quite remaining question is, do you want those products to be more finely tuned to your desires? Um, I believe that Magic would be a better game if they were already doing this because they would know so much more about what we like about the game. And there are a bunch of different angles to consider, everything from lore to the various formats to um, the various price points of various products and, and, and rarity tiers and so forth. And I think Wizards bungles around a lot, kind of making mistakes that we all take note of because they're not doing these things. And when they eventually get around to embracing them and 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 embrace technology as a whole, I I think the game will get better. Well, I don't disagree with you there. It certainly will get better because they'll, and the game being better basically means they're better able to give us what we want. I, that pairs with also better able to make money off of us. Uh, 
but that's this is sort of off the beaten path a little bit for what we were trying to discuss. Um, let's hop over to Magic Tw- Masters Twenty Five real quick. Uh, this is the set that's coming uh, in the spring, so like March, I believe. Uh, this is the second Masters set that we're getting in six months. We just had iconic. We had Eternal Masters. What was that earlier this year or last year? We had Iconic Masters that just passed. It came out. Um, I don't know if anyone remembers that it came out. I don't think anyone cared. And now we have another one just down the barrel here. Um, I'm not I'm not too interested in trying to guess what's going to be in it. Uh, basically, anything that you thought might be an Iconic Masters that wasn't is on the table for Masters 25 is the way I would think about it. Um, and you can look back at Iconic Masters and EMA and Modern Masters 3 to get a feel for what like the mythic and rare distribution will probably be like, what you know, how many money cards, that type of thing. Um, I guess the better question is like, are they going to keep up this pace and why are they doing it? Uh, I'm in, you know, we, we've chatted about it a little bit before, I guess at this point, I'm inclined to think that I, I, I think they're trying to see how much they can squeeze out of all of us. And I re- and I doubt that they're making enough money. I, I, I doubt that the sales on iconic masters, especially now is going to bear out that this is a really effective strategy. So they might have a couple more bullets in that particular chamber still loaded uh, because of the way that they work. So we could still see another master set in the fall and possibly another one in the spring of 2019 that they've kind of already done all the work on. But they might slow down after that if they're seeing if they if they're seeing now that the sales aren't really that great. Um, and I do I do think that the reprints are getting I'm going to say rougher in the sense that like it's better players who want access to the cards because they keep coming and coming and dropping the price and modern is a lot cheaper now than it was but at the same time everyone's collections value is deflating um and i guess if you're trying to make money off of the game like james and i are it's getting worse too so i do see this as a possibility that this isn't the case of them trying to figure out how much they can squeeze us for all the time but kind of looking at magic on like a five year ten year plan and going okay Modern is starting to settle. It's not as thrilling. Uh, So we're going to spend several years kind of mining that for value, uh, getting a lot of reprints out, and then we're going to kind of move to a new topic. And I feel like earlier this year, I was rolling my eyes at the idea of a new format. But the more I think I look at the frequency of these master sets and how how they're kind of treating everything, I kind of wonder if they're looking to a different horizon or perhaps not introduce a new a, a new format in the same way that, that in the same vein as modern but rather shift the their product to the casual and edh market instead so like maybe they go back to only a master set every other year instead of doing them constantly but they start introducing more and more edh products um and casual products since there's so much more apparent uh, sales volume in that region than there is in that format. Uh, and that could be both in part to modern, you know, everyone who wants to play modern is basically already there. And also um, the growing popularity of casual type of thing. So I don't know. What's your take on all of this at this point? I'm not sure that um, how many master sets we're getting is linked to a new format on the horizon per se. I, I've said forever that a new format is inevitable, that modern, uh, as even though it's the healthiest format, probably the healthiest magic format right now, um, uh, or at least in the top two with EDH, um, that it is not a core format. 
that modern doesn't sell enough cards. And the master sets um, being released at this pace is essentially testing that theory. They are, they are attempting to establish how much can be absorbed by the competitive scene if you also include EDH and, and casual nuggets and collector nuggets alongside. I mean, the, the, the premise of the master sets has been very diluted. When we first saw it, it was Modern Masters 2013. We didn't see another one until Modern Masters 2015. And then since then, they've been moving to ex- like do master sets of all varieties. We had Eternal Masters that was very kind of muddled um, and and now iconic, which has been ex- was extremely muddled, that had a very poor thesis um, and like marketing a position in the market and an odd timing of a release. And then we're heading into M twenty five, which everybody would like to be what my iconic masters was assumed to be the most iconic cards from the twenty five years of the game, as would be appropriate for its twenty fifth anniversary. And I suspect that it's going to be some of that and not enough, and we're all going to be a little bit disappointed again. Um, what they're really trying to do here is leverage the excellent margins of the Masters subbrand. So keep in mind what we're talking about when a Master set has no new cards in it so far. So there is, there is, they don't really have to design anything except the draft format, which is designed really only to be played um, over a relatively short period of time that isn't linked to the competitive circuit at all. And, you know, they just need streamers to pump up the set by streaming the set on Magic Online for you know, six weeks or whatever, and then they'll switch back to some other format. So it's these are gap fillers to keep people focused on the brand in between the releases of mainline products for the core formats, which are standard, draft, and sealed, um, and to make sure that people are buying each new mainstream product as it comes out. The twist that they threw us with Iconic Masters is, well, what if Master Sets aren't uh, exclusive to LGSs anymore? What if they are also at big box stores? What will that do to sales patterns? They're, they're just tweaking knobs. They're trying things. And they were willing to lose um, trust equity with their, uh, their Wizards Play Network in exchange for tweaking those knobs, which speaks volumes about how much they care about money more than they care about um, you know, the stores that have kept, kept their sales flowing for 25 years. Um, and if I, if I was an LGS owner, I'd be a little concerned about that because it's kind of a disconcerting uh, uh, pattern. Um, but the, but the funny thing about Iconic Masters is we saw the MSRP was set at 240 boxes sold as low as 140 during peak supply. And we'll probably creep back up into the 150, 160, 165, 170 range over time. But keep in mind that those boxes, the hard fixed printing costs of those boxes are still, uh, essentially the same. They're probably a little more because the print runs are probably, are probably less than something like Ixalan. Um, so the the price per box is actually a little higher, but there's still you're still essentially printing a box that maybe costs them I don't know twenty five twenty twenty five dollars to print a box. Hard to say some total what that number is, how low it actually is five dollars fifteen. I don't know. I'd have have to see some accounting on the various components of what it takes to get a box. And it also depends on whether you're including marketing costs and so forth, or just the fixed printing costs. But the bottom line is that master sets are more profitable by nature. They are reusing cards. You don't have to design a constructed format. Um, You only have to design a draft format. And um, you're not, the R&D process that goes on internally isn't isn't nearly as intensive. and so, and the MSRP is automatically set much higher by using cards that have already appreciated. And so they're charging much more for them. So even at 140 a box, it's essentially a box of Ixalan 
with a third less cards in it, because keep in mind, master sets have 24 packs, not 36. So, um, sorry, a, a full... Am I doing that math wrong? <laughs> what, sorry, wait, it was a late night. What math were you trying to figure out here? Uh, reducing from 36 to 24 is, yeah, 33% less packs yeah. uh, than 36. So, less cards printed. Um, you're only printing reprints. So even when those boxes are selling at 140, that's the the LGSs, the vendors losing money. That's not Wizards losing money because they they are still selling what might have cost them 20 or 25 to print um, for you know almost double what they get out of a regular box of Ixalan. So that's why they're pushing the master sets because they make them so much more money per box. And so they, because that's true, they would really like to figure out <laughs> how to sell us more products like that. And that's why we're seeing an expansion of the, the, the themes of the, the master sets. They want to see how far they can push it. Now, I think they're going to, I believe, as we've said in the past, that they're going to have to start adding, adding in new cards. I, I think they got to suck that up and do it. And they don't even have to do that many, and they don't. They still don't have to design a constructed format around it. They just have to. In, if in Modern Masters 2019 they introduce ten new modern cards in the same way that in Commander sets they give us new cards, um, people will be stoked about that if the cards are good. And if it opens up new archetypes and ends up rotating the format a bit, that's going to be a great way to uh, act as custodians of that format. Um, now, as a side topic, do I think that something like Frontier um, will eventually be embraced by Wizards and launched? Yes, absolutely. Because, And if you don't understand that, then you don't really understand how this game functions economically. Modern is getting to the point where if you, when I was doing research trying to figure out you know, what Modern Masters 2017 stuff you should be focusing on as specs, I keep keeping my eye on the inventory levels of the fetch lands. They're not really moving. The reason for that... <laughs> isn't that fetch lands aren't useful it's that most people that play modern already have the fetch lands they need and so the demand on them is relatively mild and you know that's a function of the fact that this format is relatively settled it still has you know cool new things that happen here and there that can make us money and that are interesting like the five color humans deck appearing on the scene out of nowhere and death shadow like a year before that but you know as a whole the format isn't driving sales as hard as it did nearly as hard as it did when it was a new format you need new formats you need new angles uh, you need new product lines to keep the brand fresh and keep people purchasing so you will inevitably see a new format we we can't have the same formats 20 years from now that we have today that's just not going to happen so as a modern player you have to amortize the cost of your modern decks over the likely horizon of that format call it 10 years and realize that at some point modern will be like legacy um, or and they may either introduce an entirely new format, or they might say we're going to lop off five or ten years of of moderns uh, available card pool and just see what happens. We're going to run a test for a year, and if that turns out to be a better format, they're going to keep it. If there's a massive outcry and people fight wham 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 against that, then maybe they won't. Mm. Yeah, I mean the. the- how much money they're able to extract from the boxes certainly makes it a little bit more difficult to divine their other strategies because it's like, well, they could be trying to wring as much equity out of modern before they introduce a new format as they can, or they could just be greedy and trying to make as much money as possible. And they're not really thinking about the long-term health of the formats because I bet that it's not Aaron Forsyth and Mark Rosewater who are sitting around and deciding what prod 
you know, just ultimately deciding what products to release. That's got to be coming from somebody above them. Uh, and they just kind of work with what they're sort of told to do. Uh, well, there, there are, I'll tell you what's happening. There's internal operations and planning meetings where the bean counters, the account, the finance side of the company is, you know, Hasbro hands down financial objectives. We want the brand to do this this year based on what we understand about it. Based on your, the, your reporting structures, you submit quarterly. We think you guys could amp your growth up another 2%. That's what we want to see you guys do. Um, and then the internal finance team at Wizards will say, you know, they're the ones with the magic info, right? Like imagine a WikiLeaks style thing where we saw the exact print runs of every set going back 10 years. Wow, that's tasty data. Hmm. Um, you know, they have all that. They know what the sales numbers are. They know what's happened when they included expeditions, when they included um, masterpieces and when they didn't. They know um, they've seen what all these tweaks do. They know what times of the year they sell more product. They know what outlets sell the, sell certain products better than others. And so they inevitably engage in dialogue with the R&D design and development teams saying, we are concerned about your proposal for unstable. We know you've wanted to print a set like this for 10 years, but you're going to have to convince us because we're worried it's not going to sell enough. And then they jostle and negotiate um, as you would expect to figure out what angles could be included in the set to make that worth taking that risk on. And the angle that Rosewater sold them on is here's a bunch of experimental stuff that we might want to do with the game that could keep people excited about it. If we roll it out pieces at a time and tweaked forms and we want to get, just push it out there and let people fool around with it and see, and then run some marketing surveys and see what people think. Yeah. I mean, Yes, I, I agree that that's probably what the the selling point here was for the Hasbro execs was we get to kind of do essentially a test run to figure out what will make us more money in the future and we can sell that test run now. It's almost, you know what it is, is it's, it's similar to the early access on Steam. It's the same type of idea almost like you're going to be my guinea pigs and test this and I'm going to make money on it at the same time. Hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it like that before. Um, let's see here. Anything else that you want to uh, touch on this week? Uh, I just wanted to update people on my cardboard into Bitcoin, uh, scenario that's been playing out. Uh, I found a buyer for my SP plus unlimited black Lotus this week at 0.43 Bitcoins in the middle of the week when Bitcoin was at about 9,400 a coin. As of this morning, it's at uh, 11,700. So the at the moment of sale, I was getting about 4,200 US with no fees um, for that Black Lotus, which was more or less retail um, and a very good price. Um, now I'm up 25% and I've essentially received over $5,000 in value for that Black Lotus, which is about as sweetheart of a deal as you could have got anywhere. And I'm wishing that I had sold even more cardboard to the gentleman in question. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, so are you just on the uh, always take Bitcoin for cards plan at this point? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, th I think that talking about magic specs is uh, if, if you have no intention of getting into crypto, <laughs> then just keep your head down and keep doing what you're doing with MTG Finance. But if you're holding, if you're interested in crypto and you've done your research and you're ready to make a move, then, you know, the plan I'm going to try to execute here is out of the unlimited and back into a beta at the same quality level within a year. Vis-a-vis -vis crypto. What's the, That's the uh, price difference? The article I'm... 
uh, let's say that I can like get a near mint beta Lotus in the 10 to $12,000 range. Okay. So like some, triple up maybe at least a double something between a double and a triple. Okay. I mean, that would be pretty ridiculous. So I'm, I'm essentially placing the same kind of bet that Ed has already placed with Jeremy, right? Uh, yeah, sounds like it in the same region. Ed, Ed was saying 10,000 to 25,000 by this time next year. Yeah, said it was his claim, yeah. Mm-hmm. His, his and I mean, and we're, we're up 25% since four days ago. <laughs> we are. So <laughs> we're on pace. Um, yeah, I mean... That, all I can say is that I think this is going to work out. Uh, it's highly risky. Same old, same old. Okay. Uh, so if you guys have a couple hundred thousand dollars laying around that you're willing to invest in a ris- risky investment, there you go. <laughs> well, here's the thing. The beauty, the, the one thing that people should know, in case we haven't made this clear in the past or they haven't divined it themselves from the media, is that the price of a Bitcoin is kind of irrelevant. Um in terms of your accessibility to investing in crypto, you can set up a wallet today and buy $5 in Bitcoin and just see how that whole process works. Um, because cryptocurrency is infinitely divisible. So you can buy 0.000001 of a Bitcoin if you want to and just see what's up. Um, install a wallet, make a purchase, spend it on something and just get in the loop, like understand what's going on. Buy a pizza with some Bitcoin and, and you know, join the future. Buy a, buy a salad. <laughs> yeah a salad okay well uh i think that brings us to the end of episode 96 james where can our listeners find you you guys can find me on twitter at mtg critic as well as via my weekly articles on mtgprice.com and i'm travis allen i'm on twitter at wizard bumpin b-u-m-p-i-n right every monday for mtg price with the watchtower series which is designed to keep an eye on specs on the horizon I am also uh, on the Cartel Aristocrats webcast. And if you like playing magic, check out Scry.land. Find magic in your area. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 96. I was glad we got a chance to do this. Hopefully we can get back on schedule in the nearest future, but uh, I would imagine all the way through New Year's, it's going to be a little touch and go on that. Yeah, it's going to be a little tricky. So if we're a couple of days late here and there, folks, uh, please do forgive us. We're trying to get the content out the door, but busy dudes living busy lives. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks again, James, and I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Thank you.